Well, good morning. Uh, We are glad you guys are all back in town and glad to have you guys here with us this morning. If you were visiting for the first time, uh, my name is Trey Corey. I'm our college pastor here at our Southwood campus, and we are thrilled that you guys are with us. We're going to be actually continuing this spring in our series through the book of Hebrews. And so if you guys will turn Hebrews chapter 8 this morning, we're going to be in the entirety of Hebrews chapter 8. As you guys turn there, as you guys notice on your uh, chairs, we have our small group sign-up forms. This is kind of our big Sunday before small groups kick off. And so We'd love for you guys to uh, be able to sign up for small groups this morning. And uh, one of the things I'd love for you guys to know, we're going to be doing something this spring we've never done before. We're going to have uh, a service team and a fellowship team here at Southwood on uh, Tuesday nights, along with our First Corinthians growth groups. And those two teams simply are going to be studying First Corinthians like our other growth groups, but those two teams are also set up and their purpose is to help uh, put on our college ministry. They, they help serve behind the scenes, whether greeting on a Sunday morning, whether setting up chairs on a Sunday morning, whether planning socials for our college ministry here at Southwood or not. Uh, those two teams are helping us put off a lot of what we do. And so if you're looking for a spot to get involved, not just to study the word, but also to help and find a spot to serve, I'd love to encourage you toward those two teams. Those are two great spots to get involved and to serve and to be a part of things here at our Southwood campus this spring. We are thrilled that you guys are with us and hope you guys, your first weeks back in classes have been not so painful, all right? But Hebrews chapter 8, if you'll look with me, we're going to be verses 1 to 13 this morning. I'm going to start off and read verses 1 to 6. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, God says that you make all things according to the pattern which you have shown on the mountain. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Let me pray with me. Father God, we give you great thanks uh, for the priesthood of Jesus Christ. That in Jesus we have one who's died on our behalf, who's paid the penalty for our sins so that we could have freedom, that we could have eternal life, we could have forgiveness in your presence. And Father, I thank you this morning, Lord, that even as he stands as our priest, even as he stands as our advocate, he is there not just as our defender. I thank you, Lord, that he is there as one who has brought a better covenant, one who has brought better promises for us. Promises that don't just redeem us, but promises that transform us and change us. And Father, I ask this morning, even as we open your word, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would illuminate our minds. I pray that you would take some challenging sections even this morning through the book of Hebrews and that you'd allow it to be exceedingly relevant and exceedingly practical. Uh, Father, I pray that you would take my words and allow them to be yours and that you would do with me however you see fit this morning. I pray also for us this morning and even as we begin this semester, Lord, I pray that you would flip our worlds and our lives upside down. I pray that you'd come and that you would uh, challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would move us to things this semester that we never foresaw and never imagined. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the courage to follow your call and you'd give us the courage and the boldness to trust you wherever you call us and whenever you call us, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. I had a chance this week to uh, read a national bestseller that was written a few years ago called The Tipping Point. I don't know if any of you guys have had a chance to read that book, if any of your classes have caused you guys to read that book, but it was a fascinating read by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. 
In it, he discusses a series of epidemics that he's watched historically and done studies on that have swept through not just America, but through, through and, and across our world at times. Epidemics not just necessarily of a viral or a disease, but epidemics even like culture or even like fashion or products and business. Epidemics that have sweeped, sweeped not just, in a sense, the physical disease realm, but even business, even politics, even culture, even fashion. And he walks through all these things. What he sees throughout a lot of these kinds of epidemics is that they all, at some point, reach what he calls a tipping point. It's that one moment in time when everything all of a sudden dramatically changes and epidemic just breaks out. Even as he kind of walks through those things, he details everything from the reemergence of hush puppies as a fashion trend in the mid-90s to the rapid decline of crime in New York City to the childhood show that was just a phenom, Sesame Street, way back when, to even the uh, books like the Yaya Sisterhood. He goes all over the map detailing epidemics. And as he does those, he always notices one, in a sense, moment that he calls the tipping point. It's that one dramatic moment when all of a sudden it's like a watershed, a threshold moment, that boiling point when things just blow up and take off. And as he looks at those tipping points, one of the things he finds throughout all of these movements, all of these things from fashion to business to politics is they all, in a sense, have three kinds of factors that, in a sense, come together to create this tipping point, so to speak. And as I kind of was walking through it, it's fascinating as he spends a lot of time talking about, in a sense, if this were an epidemic or an infection, the kinds of people that spread infection, the carriers, those who cause an epidemic to break forth. And he spends some time not just talking about the kinds of people that cause an epidemic to break forth, but he talks about the kinds of infections or the kinds of epidemics that actually lead to a breakout. And not just the epidemics themselves, but also the environment that those epidemics emerge into that facilitate that epidemic to break forth. And as I was kind of reading through it, one of the things that was kind of really struck me that was fascinating was he talked about two particular instances in which you had an epidemic that in many ways, in it, as it began, was absolutely latent and absolutely harmless. And particularly he talks about the flu virus of 1918, a virus that in the summer of 1918 would ransack and would, would actually kill 20 to 40 million people worldwide. Fascinating thing about the epidemic, though, was that in the spring when it first emerged on the scene, it wasn't deadly at all. It was diagnosed, and it wasn't harmful, and it didn't even spread, but something happened to that strain of flu in the summer of 1918, and it changed, and it mutated, and as a result, it became incredibly deadly. He also references the HIV virus that, in a sense, tipped in the late 1980s and became a worldwide concern. And yet, as he kind of does some detail and some research on it, he talks about the fact that that virus actually was identified and seen as early as the 1950s, and yet it wasn't harmful. In fact, it was quite quarantined quite easily. But something happened in the 1980s when that virus tipped, so to speak, and became a worldwide epidemic. In many regards, the HIV strain that they saw in the 50s dynamically changed, mutated, and the result of it was that it took off and became a huge concern worldwide health-wise. What we're going to see this morning in our passage in Hebrews chapter 8, in a sense of that, is I, what I think is Christianity's tipping point. It's that moment in time when something happens dramatically, there's a mutation, a transformation, and what had really, in a sense, been a harmless strain of Judaism, all of a sudden it gets transformed and mutated and takes off and is going to, in the next 200, 300 years, flip Asia and Europe upside down. The question I want to ask you guys this morning, though, is what caused that change? Even as we've been looking through the book of Hebrews this past fall and as we continue through it this spring, and you think through the three factors that cause an epidemic to break forth, none of them were present, in a sense, in Hebrews in the, through the first century. Think about the carriers of an epidemic. Jesus chose 12 disciples that, in many regards, were fishermen, uneducated. They were not the kinds of people that would have spread forth an epidemic. In fact, the message that Jesus Christ had that when he died on a cross, in many regards, that message went silent and it got buried under. 
the message itself, the carriers of the message, both in a sense would not have drawn attention, would not have been the kinds of things that would have caused you to think that Christianity was going to take over Asia and Europe within a few hundred years. In fact, if you think about the environment itself that, that the Christian message would enter into, it was an environment that in the first century, specifically as you look at the book of Hebrews, was a message and a movement that many had regarded as a cult. They had just simply dismissed Christianity. The first followers of Jesus Christ were seen to be a cult that, that many people didn't understand. As they practiced the Lord's Supper, that, that culture that day and time thought they were actually eating flesh. They thought they were cannibals, all right? As they called one another brothers and sisters, they thought they were not only cannibals, but were practicing incest. The culture that day and time did not understand what the Christian message and the Christian, Christian followers were all about. In fact, it wasn't just that the people themselves were struggling, but in that environment, the culture had dismissed these people as a cult that they didn't understand. And as we look at the book of Hebrews, what we've noticed is that these people are under extreme pressure. They are being persecuted. They are being shamed. Their possessions are being taken away. They're losing their jobs. And the writer of Hebrews will say even further that they're on the very point of suffering bloodshed. They're at the very point of being killed for their faith, all right? In the first century, no one would have thought that this Christian message, this Christian group of followers were going to break forth an epidemic that would have swept Europe and Asia. So the question is, what happened? How did this little cult that was misunderstood all of a sudden sweep across Asia and Europe become even the official religion of the Roman Empire at the time? What happened? I want to submit to you guys this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to land not just at the heart of the book of Hebrews, but we're going to land and I think we're going to see really what happened to a little random strain of Judaism that gets mutated and changes that is going to cause an epidemic to sweep through Asia, Europe, and therefore the world. We're going to see in particular the kind of change that occurred and we're going to see it particularly in our passage this morning. And for me, the the truths that we're going to find here in Hebrews 8 were also the truths that flipped my world upside down in college, all right? As I came into college, I was an incredibly insecure kid. I'd come to the Lord. I knew Jesus Christ. But as I came to college, something happened as I got into some of the truths that we're going to talk about this morning. And all of a sudden, my life got flipped upside down. All right. And I want to ask you this morning, even as you guys come here for another semester in the midst of all the things that you guys have on your mind, I want to ask you, has your faith in Jesus Christ actually flipped your world upside down? Has it actually re-evolved and actually reoriented every single particular facet of life that you see? Do you think your faith has anything to do with school? (laughs) Do you think your faith has anything to do with a career that you're going to have one day? Lord willing, if you can ever get out of this place, right? Do you think your faith has anything to do with the person, Lord willing, hopefully that you'll marry if you find that person, right? What's going to happen? Does your faith have anything to do with those arenas? I'd argue that it does. And that as we come to Christianity, as we come to Jesus Christ, it's not just about a moral facelift. It's not just about insurance from hell but it's about a radical reorientation when Jesus Christ flips your world upside down and messes with you, all right? And so if you're here this morning as we open the book of Hebrews and you're looking at small groups and you're looking at walking with the Lord this, this semester, let me warn you, let me challenge you, that as you walk into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he will flip your world upside down. His hope for you isn't just to redeem you from your sin and get you forgiveness and wipe off your debt from him, but his hope for you is to resurrect you to a new kind of life that will reorient the entire perspective you have on life. And I think it really begins with some of the things that we're going to find this morning in Hebrews chapter 8. And so look with me, if you will. Hebrews 8, we read through verses 1 to 5, and what we're going to see in a sense is it kind of starts off nondescript. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to start off kind of safely in verses 1 to 5, and what he's going to show us is that the priesthood of Jesus is superior to all others. In particular, we're going to find that it's superior in Jesus' place compared to the place of all other Old Testament priests. Look with me, if you will, chapter 8, verse 1. The writer says, Now the main point in what has been said is this, We have such a high priest 
Uh, let me kind of re- rewind back for you guys, review a little bit where we've been all fall, all right? We're going to do it in about one minute, so buckle up. Here we go, okay? Uh, the main point of the book of Hebrews is this, is that Jesus is superior, all right? I don't care what chapter you're in. I don't care what the argument is. If you can just remember at the top of it, Jesus is superior. Whatever he's trying to say, he's just trying to prove to you that Jesus is better than anyone else, any other thing, any other religion, any other former priest or leader, that Jesus is superior, In chapters 1 and 2, basically the writer said that Jesus is better than the angels and he's better than the prophets because Jesus is a better revealer of the truth of God. If you want to know truth, if you want to know wisdom, Jesus is a better deposit and a better revealer of it than the prophets, uh, than culture, than wisdom, than angels. He's the best that you can find because he's the best revealer of who God is because he's in the image of God and he's also the source of all the truth of God. Chapter 3 in the first part of chapter 4 said that Jesus is not just better than the angels and the prophets, but they went up even one step higher and said Jesus is better than Moses. Better than Moses, better than any other ruler Israel ever had. Jesus is better. Not just as a revealer, but he's also better as a ruler. And so as we walk through the book of Hebrews, we find that Jesus is not just in the image of God, but he's going to one day rule the entirety of the earth. And then as we walk from the last half of chapter 4 through chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, what we're going to be looking at is the nature of Jesus' priesthood. And really for the bulk of the book of Hebrews, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus as a priest is better than any other priest that's come before and better than any other priest that will ever come because he is a priest that will not be removed from his office. He was put in place as a priest and he will reside eternally as that priest. He's not like the Old Testament priests that were cycled through every year as they died. It wasn't like the Old Testament priest that had weakness, that had sin, that he was perfect, he was uh, righteous, that he was immortal. But even though he was perfect, he's actually more sympathetic than the Old Testament priest because he can understand us because he's experienced in his humanity every temptation, every trial. So in his perfection, he's not one who stands off, but he's one who's come near with sympathy, with understanding, and with compassion. He is better than every Old Testament priest. In particular, what he'll say this morning to us in in verses 1 to 5 is that he resides in a better place. Notice he says, we have such a high priest. What kind of high priest this morning does he want to develop? He says, one who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Where is this priest? He's in the heavens. Verse 2, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that this priest resides in heaven in the very presence of God himself. And he's going to begin to set up a contrast between Jesus as priest in the heavens and all the Old Testament priests who are in the temporary tabernacle. So he begins to set up a contrast. He says, hey, God has pitched the, the tabernacle that Jesus is in compared to the tabernacle that the Old Testament priest resided in that man pitched. So he says Moses was given the pattern in which he constructed the tabernacle and the tent and the sanctuary in which they met, in which they had sacrifices. Even more so, I want you guys to notice, and notice what he says, though, in verse 5. The Old Testament priests, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. That the Old Testament system the strain of Judaism that we're going to look at this morning in which, in a sense, that the Old Testament priests were making sacrifices that were to atone for the sins of the nation so that they could have a relationship with God, that as they kind of went through that system, as they went and brought sacrifices in the temple or the tabernacle, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is it is just a copy, a shadow of the real thing. In fact, that's why God tells Moses, according to verse 5, that what he was building was to be in the pattern of what he saw in the heavens. The Old Testament tabernacle and temple that we see as the priests are serving in, as they're ministering in, as they're sacrificing in, was but a shadow and a copy of the real thing. In a sense, the priests are playing make-pretend priests. 
Uh, a lot of you guys know, Marcia and I have a little girl named Caroline. She's about 15 months now, and she's now at the age where we're starting to see her imagination come alive, right? She's starting to do things and imagine things. And, and over Christmas, uh, when we went to my in-law's house, Marcy's family's house, her parents bought her a stuffed dog, right? It was one of these little precious little dogs from FAO Schwartz. It was unwrapped, and it was right under the tree. We walk into the house. First thing she notices, Caroline does, is this gigantic tree. She walks over to it, sees the shiny ornaments, and then she notices immediately the unwrapped, unboxed, unpackaged stuffed dog right underneath the tree, all right? She goes straight to it. She sits down right in front of it, and then she begins to just pet it, all right? She begins to pet it, all right? Uh, we have a little uh, two-year-old uh, uh, dog named Millie who's a Boston Terrier who's just crazy, all right? Uh, but Millie and Caroline absolutely adore and love each other, and they're always trying to play together, all right? And in fact, Millie always wants to kiss Caroline, which Marcy's not a big fan of, but I think it's hilarious, all right? Uh, and so, you know, Caroline loves dogs, all right? So she sees this stuffed dog, she begins to pet it, and then she begins to do what she sees me do with Millie all the time. One of the things that I do with Millie is I'll pet the ground, and then Millie will run to it, and, and then that's where we'll play, all right? And so Caroline will uh, begin to, with the stuffed dog, begin to pat the ground, thinking that the stuffed dog would maybe run to the spot and they could play, right? She didn't realize it was just a pattern of a real dog, right? Uh, Caroline also, for Christmas got uh, Christmas ago, got one of these like kitchen sets, all right, that's in her playroom, all right? So she sees Marcy and I cooking at times, and so then she'll go into her little kitchen and she'll prepare a, a fake dish with fake pots and fake food, right? It's a pattern and a copy, a shadow of the real thing, right? And for kids, it's fine because they're imagining, they're playing pretend. But as you look at the Old Testament, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the Old Testament priests were like a little two-year-old, who in a sense were doing exactly as they were told to do, but they were playing pretend, so to speak, in the pattern or in the fake tabernacle that was just a picture of the real thing. And so the writer of Hebrews comes and says, look, Jesus is superior because he's not playing make-pretend priest. He's not in the make-pretend tabernacle. He's in the real tabernacle, the real deal, not the shadow deal, not the copy, not the pattern. Jesus is superior as priest because he's the only priest that's standing and residing and serving in the real tabernacle. But what's the significance of the fact that he's in a superior place? (laughs) Why does it matter that he's in the heavens while these guys are on the earthly tent and tabernacle? Why is that significant? Or why is that distinction significant? In many regards, I'd argue that you and I are, are, we find it no difficulty to think that the superior place always leads to a superior status, achievement, or, or power of someone, right? So you and I walk through a board a plane, we walk through first class. Why? Because what the, what the airline wants to do and what first class members want to do in their superior place is show to you and I that they're better than us, right? And so we walk with our heads down because we're ashamed that we're not in first class, but they're better people than they are, right? Um, it's not just first class, right? Then it's the business executives who have the corner office. They're in a superior place from all the other people in cubes, right? Like you guys will be when you graduate. Um, it's not just that, or it's like everyone else who sits courtside at a basketball game, right? I was at the basketball game yesterday, and I looked with covetingness that's sinful upon all those who sit courtside. <laughs> they're in a better place. Therefore, to me, it seems like they're better people. Uh, the superiority of place always at some level denotes the superiority of achievement, of status, of honor, right? And so what the writer of Hebrews will do is he'll make that implication explicit in verse 6. Because of his superior place as priest, he has a superior ministry as priest. Verse 6, but now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. It's not just that Jesus' priestly place is better, but his priestly promises are better as well. The writer of Hebrews is going to use a word that you and I don't use in our normal language. He uses the word covenant. Jesus has a better covenant that has better promises. What is covenant? What is a covenant? Ultimately, a covenant in the Old Testament or in the ancient Near East, culturally, was our version of an agreement that we seal with a signature or a handshake, okay? 
So a covenant in the Old Testament is simply an agreement between two parties with promises and terms to fulfill those promises. So in the Old Testament, God made all sorts of covenants with his people. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, people made all kinds of covenants with one another. Sometimes those covenants were not sealed with a signature or sealed with a handshake, but they were sealed with blood if they were a serious covenant. Sometimes they were sealed with an exchange of salt. So I would take salt from my little bag, I put salt in your little bag, and we made a covenant, an agreement between two different parties of what was going to happen in the future. Sometimes they would exchange sandals, which I still don't understand, because if you give a sandal away, you got one sandal, what do you wear, right? So, uh, but they made all kinds of different agreements, different kinds of covenants. They would exchange and seal them with salt, with sandals, with blood sometimes. And as we walk through the, the Old Testament, really God's covenants, his agreements with the people of God, with Israel, the nation of Israel, critical to understanding the flow of the Old Testament, all right? And what the writer of Hebrews is going to say here in verse 6 is that Jesus has a better covenant than the Old Testament priest. Well, what in the world is he talking about? Verses 7 and 13 to 7 and 13 are going to explain further the covenant that Jesus has compared to the covenant that the Old Testament priests have. So look with me, verses 7 and 13. We're going to kind of read through this and then I'm going to try to unpack it for you. What's the different distinction between the covenants? Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, God says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall also not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So, what was Jesus' covenant, and why was it better than the one that was coming before? What was Jesus' covenant? As we kind of look through Hebrews 8, and as we walk through the rest of the book of Hebrews, we're going to find that Jesus' covenant is what we refer to as the new covenant. The new covenant that's therefore in contrast to the old covenant. Uh, as the writer of Hebrews kind of walks through this section, he's going to refer to the old covenant as the first covenant, and as the second covenant, or Jesus' covenant, as the new covenant. So he's making a parallel and a contrast between these two covenants. The question is, why was there a need for a second covenant? Why was there a need for a second covenant? Why do we need Jesus' new covenant? He says in verse 7, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So there was a first covenant that the Old Testament priests had. The question is, what was wrong with it, okay? The first covenant that the Old Testament priests had, the writer of, or the prophet refers to as the one that God gave them when they came out of Egypt and he, they got it at Sinai. That old covenant or that first covenant is what we often refer to as the Mosaic covenant. It is the covenant that God gave to the nation of Israel through Moses. It's also what we refer to as the law. So if you've heard of the Ten Commandments, you've heard of Exodus, Leviticus, all those laws, all those endless string of commands of what Israel was supposed to do, what they were supposed to eat, what they were supposed to wear, all of that we would refer to as the law, which we'd also refer to as the first covenant or the old covenant. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, referring to Jesus' covenant, is he's saying the covenant that Jesus is serving under as priest is better than the old covenant. The question is, why is it better and why was there a need for a new covenant? He says that there was a fault for it. And notice what he says in verse 8. Notice where the fault lies. He says, verse 8, for finding fault with them, God says. 
As we look at the, the law of the Old Testament, the reality, especially as Paul refers to it in uh, Romans 7, is there was nothing necessarily wrong with the law. It was good, it was holy, and yet the problem was it didn't produce the result God had hoped for in the nation of Israel. In fact, he's going to say the result for the nation of Israel was that they did not continue in my covenant, they did not obey me. The problem was not with the covenant or with the law, God's re- revelation, but the problem was with the people to whom God revealed it to. It's like the girl who, who you're dating who tells you, hey, we need to sit down and talk, and you always know it's never going to be good after those fateful words, right? And you sit down, and she tells you, we're not going to be dating anymore, and, and, and you ask why, and she says, it's not you, it's me, right? It's the worst line. Please never say that to us, okay? Um, the reality, though, is God doesn't do that. What God says is, that it's not me, it's, it's you, all right? You are the problem, all right? Um, which... Sometimes it's more brutal, but it's clearer for us guys. If you could just do that for us, all right? So that's what God does. God says, here's the problem. It's not with what I revealed to you. The problem is with you. They didn't obey, but the question is, why did they not obey? Let me give you guys a few answers as to why that in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel did not obey the law. The reason why they did not obey is they had no desire to obey. God says of them when they got the law in Deuteronomy 5, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. First problem with the people of, of Israel were that they didn't have a desire to obey. God told them exactly what they were supposed to do, but the problem was they had no desire, they had no heart that was responsive to want to do it. In fact, when the law came, Romans will say, Paul will say in Romans 7, that their actual heart response was one of absolute hostility. <laughs> in fact, it's like if, if someone tells you, hey, don't go fishing somewhere, you never thought about wanting to fish until someone told you don't fish, right? That, that for some reason, when law comes, our, our, the nature of our heart's response to it is rebellion. Same thing for the nation of Israel. The reason why they didn't obey the law is that they didn't have a desire to obey. Second thing is they, they couldn't obey. They didn't have an ability to obey. Paul will say in Romans 8, uh, what the law could not do, God did, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. Paul's point in Romans 8, as he's going to unfold it, is that the nation of Israel could not obey because they didn't have the ability to obey. That in who they were, they had a heart that was unresponsive to God, that was hostile to God, and they also didn't have the ability to overcome sin and to obey and to do what he asked them to do. In contrast, what we'll see here in a little while this morning is that what God has done for you and I is that he's given us not just a new heart, but he's also given us a new ability to obey him. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. It wasn't just that they didn't have a desire and an ability to obey. They also had no actual cleansing for sin. But the law did not actually cleanse them from sin. Uh, the writer of Hebrews will say here in a little while, we'll see this in a few weeks, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That the sacrificial system of the Old Testament couldn't actually cleanse you and I from sin. God, in a sense, allowed those sacrifices to be a temporary covering as he was waiting and looking forward to the day in which his son, Jesus Christ, would be crucified on a cross and his blood would be shed once and for all to redeem us from our sin and to remove the penalty of God's wrath upon us. And so what we find is that the Old Testament covenant, the law, couldn't do any of those things. It came and revealed to a people what God wanted them to do, but it didn't give them a heart to do it, an ability to do it. And when they didn't do it, it didn't cleanse them from sin and from the wrath of God, all right? ultimately and perfectly. But what we're going to find is that the promises of, of the new covenant of, that Jesus is going to bring are entirely different. But notice the timing of this. The writer of Hebrews is going to refer here, and if you have your translation, some of it may be in all caps, to show you that it's coming and being quoted from the Old Testament. And in particular, we find the new covenant spoken to us from the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel. And what's really fascinating is that God comes and he talks to the nation of Israel about the new covenant that he's going to do for them in the future. But he comes and he talks to them, in a sense, while they're in time out. 
They've disobeyed him. And because of that, they're being punished and they're being disciplined, all right? And since they've been put in a corner and told to face the corner, the blessings and the promises of God have been removed because they've not obeyed him. And instead of coming and yelling at them further, God comes and he says, here's what I'm going to do for you guys. I'm actually going to fix you internally so that you will actually be able to and would want to obey me in the future. So he says that a day is going to come when I'm going to do something brand new in your lives. And he says, the recipients of this covenant, I want you guys to notice, he says, is to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That the new covenant that Jesus brings is a covenant that was originally promised to Israel and to Judah or to the Jews. The reality is we look through the New Testament, we'll talk a little bit more about this this semester, is that those new covenants, promises are be those things that are going to be extended eventually to you and I, Gentiles in the church, those who don't have an ethnic origin in the nation of Israel. And you and I get included in that because you and I are in Jesus Christ who receives the fulfillment and all the promises of the new covenant. We'll talk more about that in the future. What I want you guys to see in particular this morning, though, are the promises of the new covenant. Notice what God says he's going to do for the nation of Israel and by extension for you and I. First thing I want you guys to notice is that he says he's going to change their heart. The problem with the old covenant was that they didn't have a heart and a desire to obey. God says, I'm going to fix that. He says in verse 10, he says, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Parallel passage coming from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26 says that God, God says, I'm going to take your heart of stone, your heart that's cold and hard and unresponsive to me, and I'm going to change it out. I'm going to have a heart transplant. I'm going to give you a heart that's soft and responsive to me. What God is telling the nation of Israel is that a day is coming when a new covenant arrives, a new agreement with, with God and his people in which he's going to begin to slowly but surely change the heart of his people. It's not just the heart of his people, but he's also going to change their ability. In Ezekiel 36, he says, not just that I'm going to put my law on your heart, but I'm going to put my spirit within you. And the result of, of him putting his spirit within us, according to Ezekiel, he says that he'll cause us to walk in his statutes. The Old Testament law came as a ruler that showed us how poorly we measured up, all right? It says, hey, here's what I want you to do. You, didn't come short, you came short of it because you can't do it, and you're bad, and you need a savior. It's really the point of the Old Testament law, to reveal to them the righteousness of God and how unrighteous they were. The new covenant comes to redeem us from our unrighteousness and to begin to slowly but surely transform us so that we can actually fulfill that which God has called you and I to. And it begins with a heart that's beginning to change and begins with an ability according to the spirit of God that gets put within us. And we'll talk a lot more about that this semester when God puts the spirit within us so that we now have an ability to overcome sin and to begin to actually fulfill what God has called us to. The third thing we see is we get a changed purity. Notice in verse 12, he says, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The third thing I want you guys to see of the promises of the new covenant is that God says, I'm going to actually cleanse you from your sin. I'm not just going to kind of cover over it and hide it and sweep it under a rug for a time. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, a radical transformation occurs in which now the sacrifices of the Old Testament are not needed because the perfect sacrifice has come once and for all. And Jesus doesn't need to be re-crucified over and over because he was crucified once. And the way we see him is not still hung up on a cross, but we see him resurrected. He died once and his death was good. His death was good to remove us and to cleanse us from our sin so that you and I get a changed relationship with him. The fourth thing I want you guys to see, the next promise really of the new covenant is that our relationship with God changes forever. Notice what he says in particular about that relationship in verse 11. He says, And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. In particular, in the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter into the very presence of God in the, in the holy of holies of the tabernacle in the sanctuary. And, and as we look through the New Testament, what we find is that Jesus Christ has gone in there and therefore he's invited all of us into the presence of God. 
you and I, from the least of us to the greatest, all of us can have access into the presence of God and can know him. But obviously notice, you and I don't completely know him yet. And one of the things you're going to see in the New Covenant is not just that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about it coming in the future, but even as you and I have entered into it, Jesus Christ has inaugurated and begun the New Covenant, but it's not yet realized in full. It's in a sense already fulfilled, but in some senses not yet fulfilled. You and I don't all have perfect knowledge and intimacy with Jesus Christ yet. You and I know in part, we know in portion, but we don't know in fullness yet. So the new covenant has begun, but it's not yet been fully realized and fully fulfilled. The other thing I want you guys to really notice about the changing of relationship is not just, in a sense, intimate access, but also that you and I have an unconditional status with God. It's not just unlimited access, but actually an unconditional status. Notice the real distinction that the writer of Hebrews makes between these two covenants, the Old Testament priest and the law and the New Testament priest Jesus with this new covenant. He says in verse 10 for this, sorry, backing up verse 9, uh, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. The very nature of the Old Testament law was conditional. Basically, God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, you'll be cursed. If you obey me and you walk with me, you will find the fulfillment and the fullness of all my blessings. But if you do not obey me, then you're going to find something like discipline, something far worse. But as we come to the new covenant, as we come with the priesthood of Jesus Christ, we find that God has done something completely radically different with you and I that have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. The status of our relationship and how we find the blessings of God are not conditioned on performance and obedience. God has forever changed the status that we have with him. In fact, as we look at, in a sense, Jeremiah 31, as uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31 here, but that section continues on, and this is what he says later on in the section. God says, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. Which is what he did according to the Old Testament. What he's saying in the, in, according to the New Covenant is he will not do that in the future. That if you could measure the heavens and you could measure the, the foundations of the earth, then I will cast off Israel. The point is you cannot measure the heavens and you cannot measure the earth and therefore he will not cast off Israel. He will not cast off his people because he's going to deal with them on the basis of an unconditional promise. Let let me kind of hit you guys even further with how absolutely radical this is, all right? Imagine, if you will, so to speak, imagine a a student in your class, uh, hopefully it wasn't you, but who failed last semester, okay? Failed the class. Say they failed finance. Say they failed accounting, okay? Now imagine that student coming back to class this week and the professor pulling him aside and saying, and saying to the student, here's what I want to do with you. I, I know you failed my class miserably last semester, but here's what I want to do. I want to actually give you and promise you an A this semester. Now I want to ask you guys, how motivated would that student be to study and attend class this spring? If that student, one who failed and, and, and now is getting a free ticket and a free ride, how motivated are they going to be to actually do the work? Probably not very motivated at all, right? They already felt like they went through the class once. Why go back through again? And yet, in many regards, what God is doing here with the nation of Israel is he's taking a people who failed. He's taking a people who disobeyed him. And he's giving to them an unconditional promise of what he wants to do for them. So the question is, if he's giving them who failed an unconditional promise, and if it's a student who's failed the class and he gets a free A the next semester and he's not going to be motivated, then how in the world is the nation of Israel, or you and I for that matter, if the promises of God are unconditional, I'm going to be motivated to obey. If God has said, hey, here's what I want to do for you, and it's unconditional, then why are you and I motivated to obey and to walk with him at all? 
I think that the wonder and why I think really Hebrews 8 is going to show us in a sense the tipping point of Christianity is that Judaism is going to mutate. It's going to change. And as Christianity emerges out of it, what we're going to find with the new covenant is that God and the infection of Christianity has changed so much that it's become deadly and it's become infectious. And why I say that is that in Judaism, in the Old Testament, they were told what God wanted to do, but they couldn't do it. And therefore, they really weren't that drawn to God. and They really weren't that drawn to obeying him and serving him and doing all that he had called them to do. But as we come in the new covenant, as God deals with a new kind of people, according to a new set of promises, what God is doing for you and I is not just redeeming us from our sin, but he's beginning a, a transformation process inside of us so that all of a sudden, slowly but surely, we begin to delight in that which God has called us to. And we begin to find an ability to do that which he's called us to that we never found apart from him before. And all of a sudden, that which is Christianity, all of a sudden, that which Jesus has called us into and that we've entered into has all of a sudden mutated in the kind of way that it's become clingy, sticky, and infectious. All right? it, it has not just been an external thing that's a religion, but it's become internal. And all of a sudden, God has invited us into something that is absolutely revolutionary and transforming because Christianity and walking with Jesus Christ is not just about doing this and not doing that. <laughs> As you come here this morning, I want you guys to hear walking with Jesus Christ is not about doing a certain set of activities and not doing another set of activities. In fact, ultimately what God wants from you and I is a relationship with him. And in that relationship, what we begin to find is he begins slowly but surely to transform our affections and to transform our responses and our ability to walk with him and obey him. I want to ask you this morning, has Jesus Christ flipped your life upside down? (laughs) For some of you guys, you've entered into a relationship with him, and from that very moment on, everything changed. Uh, for some of us, like myself, I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ in junior high. I was growing in my knowledge of him, but my life didn't flip upside down until sometime in college. And all of a sudden, I began to find in a relationship with him a, a transformation thing that was happening on that I had no idea of until college. That the walking with him is not just about doing the right things and staying out of trouble but walking with him is becoming transformed into his image and so, so much so that our joy and our fulfillment becomes so attached to what he's called you and I to be about. And that is why this thing called Christianity is so infectious and is so epidemic-like because it's not just about morality, but it's about a transformation of the inside that begins to change our outside behaviors and our outside affections and our outside responses to life. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, his death is what removes the penalty of your sins and his death is what allows you and I to enter into a relationship with him. But Christianity is not just about his death. In fact, the the picture of the cross is never primarily of a a Christ who's remaining crucified because his death was sufficient once and for all. But what Christianity is about is not just his death, which is where we start, but it's about his resurrection that brings a whole new kind of life. A kind of life that's abundant and a kind of life that's fulfilling. One of my favorite references or one of my favorite passages come from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul says this, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. What I want to ask you this morning for a lot of us who have failed and have fallen short of that, which we know God has called us to. Uh, Even for a lot of you girls, if you were at this conference this past weekend uh, called Intimate Issues, I know for a lot of people it was a really convicting, challenging time because all of us, whether it's about sexual purity or about things we've done in our life, all of us have regret. We all realize we've fallen short. We haven't fulfilled all that God has called us to. The question is, what do we do with that? The question is, do we work really, really hard so that we can uh, merit the approval of God? The answer resoundingly is no. You and I can never do enough good things that will merit his approval. 
But for some of us, we've realized that, and so we've accepted the free gift of Jesus Christ who died on our behalf so that we could enter into a relationship with him. But having entered into that relationship, some of us begin to work really hard again, thinking that if having entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we work really hard, if we do all the right things, if we stay out of trouble, then again, we'll merit his approval. (laughs) The reality is his approval of you is cemented in the new covenant. His death and his resurrection showed you that he approved of you. And then you can never do enough good things to change his love for you. You can never do enough bad things to remove his love from you. It is fixed and it is unconditional as is your status if you've trusted Jesus Christ. The reality is as you come into that relationship and you and I still struggle and we still fall short, the question is, what do you do in those moments? You struggle with pornography, you struggle in a relationship, you struggle in school or whatever area to trust God. How do you respond? I think some of us at times work really, really hard to do better, right? We grit our teeth We clench our fists and we work our tails off to do the right thing. The reality, though, of your confidence, the reality of your adequacy, the reality of how you're supposed to walk with Jesus Christ is not by self-effort. It's not by working harder. It's by learning how to walk in step with the Spirit of God as you rely in dependence on His resources to walk as He's called us to. We're going to have a chance to talk all the more about that this semester But it's the kind of thing that has changed Christianity. It's the kind of thing that's made this lifestyle, this religion, this relationship with him infectious and epidemic-like. Because as you enter into it, it changes your life and flips it upside down and begins a transformation process in you such that you are no longer who you once were, no longer delight in the things you once delighted in, and you no longer are only able to do the things that your self-help human effort can produce and allow to happen. It changes everything. So my hope this semester as we continue to walk through the priesthood of Jesus Christ and see exactly what he's enabled and what he's invited us into is that you guys will begin to see and have your eyes open to ultimately that he's called you in and you and I into something that is not about what we can merit and it's not about what we can do on our own strength, but it's about what he's already done on a cross and what he's already done in his resurrection as he's put the spirit of God in us to walk in a way we once could never walk. So that's my hope for us. A few kind of application steps for you guys. Where do we go? First thing, I encourage and challenge you guys to read Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Those are the two passages that really speak in detail about the new covenant that the writer of Hebrews is just referring to because he realizes his audience has incredible uh, background and knowledge about what the new covenant is. If you've never heard of the new covenant, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus Christ has inaugurated this new covenant. It's begun, but it's not yet realized in full, but it was promised all the way back in the Old Testament. In these two passages, they're great passages to read to understand exactly what Christ is doing within the church right now and what he's made available to you and I. Second thing I'd love to challenge you guys too is at 9.30 starting next week, from 9.30 to 10.30 right here in our space, probably back in that kitchen area, uh, we're going to start an elective, all right? An elective being kind of a Sunday school-ish kind of interactive teaching kind of thing that we're going to walk you guys from Genesis to Revelation and give you guys, in a sense, the storyline of the scriptures. And that storyline really is cemented with what, these new co- what the new covenant is and what the covenants are God has made with his people, the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. If you've ever kind of opened up your Bible and began reading somewhere in the Old Testament and thought, I am so confused and so lost, the Bible is like a gigantic ocean that I have no idea where land is, right? <laughs> I'm so just disoriented. I, I, I'll tell you guys, kind of the study that we're going to walk you guys through, kind of interactively from 9.30 to 10.30 right here, uh, starting next week for every Sunday, is one that just radically reoriented my understanding of the scriptures and actually really gave me a, a much clearer sense of what God is doing in the world and what he's called you and I to be a part of. So I highly encourage and highly invite you guys to be a part of that. 9.30 to 10.30 every Sunday from here on out, right in that kitchen area. The last thing I challenge you guys to be about and begin to think about is joining our small groups and finding a spot to serve. Jesus Christ has saved you not just to get you out of hell, but he saved you to restore you and to bring you into service of him. 
So I'd love to challenge you guys to join our small groups. We want to help you guys learn to grow in the word of God. But also our small groups become some places where you have an opportunity to serve as well. He's called you not just to redeem you, but to get you off the sidelines and into the game because he wants to use you for his glory and for his kingdom. And we want to help be a part of that. So there's all kinds of opportunities this semester, whether they're on campus with some Christian organizations or even here at our church, to jump in, to serve, to be in small groups. And we'd love for you guys to really consider this, this, this morning and consider this semester where you're going to be, where you're going to serve, where you're going to grow. So that's my hope for you guys. Let me pray for us and then we'll talk about lunch. Father God, we give you great thanks um, that your son, Jesus Christ, our priest who advocates on our behalf is him who has redeemed us from sin. He and he alone can remove us from the wrath of God. And we thank you that we have a refuge in him and his shed blood on a cross that removed the wrath of God for us. Father, I pray for some of us who've never yet trusted in you, Lord. I pray that you would give us a chance to really consider that which you've done and that which you've invited us to and the free gift that you've offered us. For those of us who've already entered that place, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a radical reorientation and a brand new awareness, especially as we walk through this semester, of what you've done on our behalf, the resources you've put in our disposal, and the way that you're transforming our lives from the inside out. Father, I pray that it would be the kind of thing that would begin to flip our world upside down and begin to make us the kinds of people that are ambassadors of your gospel, the kinds of people that are truly salt and light in our community, in our campus, in our classrooms, and in our apartments, Lord. Pray that you'd use us for your glory and that you'd give us wisdom and clarity as to where we should get involved and where we should grow this semester, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.